Yeah, let's do it. I'm pumped. Let's let the healing begin. God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. I don't want you to be the guy in the PG-13 movie. Everyone's really hoping makes it happen. I want you to be like the guy in the rated R movie, you know? The guy you're not sure whether or not you like yet. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. It's number 107. And this week we're going to be looking at 2001 A Space Odyssey in uh, recognition of its 50th anniversary. And that'll probably take up most of the podcast until we wrap it all up with our top five silent scenes or scenes without lots of dialogue. Dave, do you mind if I ask you a personal question? No, not at all. I've wondered whether you might be having some second thoughts about the mission. How do you mean? Rumors about something being dug up on the moon. I never gave these stories much credence, but particularly in view of some of the other things that have happened, I find them difficult to put out of my mind. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What are you talking about, Hal? This conversation can serve no purpose anymore. Goodbye. So, gentlemen, um, I know that I come into this podcast being probably the biggest fan of this movie I, um, out of the three of us. But I wanted to ask you guys before you... Because I don't really know exactly what you guys feel about this movie, but I do want to ask you guys. Um, I think it's important for our audience to um, understand why they should appreciate this movie, why they should, well, you know, listen to the podcast, obviously. But like, why is two thousand one a space odyssey? Why is it an, an important movie? Why should they spend the next hour with us talking about it? I mean, I think it's it's pretty clear when you watch it if you've seen any major sci-fi film especially um and this was a topic that maybe we considered discussing as a as a separate segment but you know we we knew it would tie in and the the movie is so influential every everything you see you've seen before but it all came afterwards and and it's kind of amazing no it's crazily is no what else came afterwards the moon landing that's true Actually, I, mean, I thought about that the, when I was watching it, and I didn't. I mean, look, it, I wasn't it goes sure to your to point. Yeah. No, it's just it's amazing how how innovative and ahead of its time this movie is. And I think while there are many elements of this movie that are hard for kind of the average audience to appreciate, you know, I think things as simple as the fact that the ship in this movie, the the, the very front of the ship, looks almost identical to the Death Star is something that everyone would recognize and has to appreciate what was done here. Yeah. One of my first notes when, while I was watching this movie is it's a movie that shows you anything is possible in cinema. And it kind of goes to that point of just like showing that really whatever you're, Whatever you're thinking of, whatever your mindset is, 
you can do it within the realm of cinema. Um, and this movie kind of is the the start of that. Like the again, you just going back to your point, Lee. Is just like everything you've ever seen with spaceships going through the universe. It's all coming from here. It's all like it. I don't know. It's it, it's really quite impressive in a technical realm. Hmm. Okay. Does that answer your question? I think so. I mean, I I think it's definitely this film is definitely a, an enormous technical achievement. But I wonder if we can talk a little. And you've talked about how influential it is. But I wonder why people. It's an awfully long movie. Um, and it's, I mean, I think it's entertaining from the start to finish, but I, I do think it has this reputation of being this kind of difficult to watch, um, you know, two and a half hour to uh, something like that film. And, um, I don't think it deserves that, at, that, that reputation at all. But, um, and, and I think interestingly enough, when it came out, it was kind of this like big bo- blockbuster, right? Like it was this this movie that filmmakers Christopher Nolan in particular talks about, you know, seeing on the big screen in London and, and, and you know, it had this um, kind of giant, you know, blockbuster appeal. But now it's I, I just I remember when I, I, I went to go see 2000. I've seen it a couple times in 70 millimeter, but I saw it here the new print that Christopher Nolan worked on um, that just came out uh, for the 50th anniversary. Um, I, th- I saw it last month. Um, and it was, I mean, it was amazing to see. It, they went back to the original negative, and um, but when I when I brought up to people at work that I was seeing it, there was just this, this kind of reaction, like you know, I don't know much about that movie, and there was some hesitancy to, you know, think or talk about that movie, and almost like, well, of course you like that, you're a cinephile, and I just don't think of it as that kind of as being kind of an esoteric movie. Am I wrong? Well, I always have sort of thought of it that way mm. um having watched it again now and i should preface this by saying that i may have i may have well been seeing this for the first time when i watched it the other night i think i'd maybe seen it once in film school but i didn't remember i barely remembered a frame of this movie so it was it was a uh, interesting experience for for that reason um but i've so i've but i've always sort of felt that way that it's this kind of like you know film school movie that you see because you have to and it's a slow burn it's you know it's very long uh it's it's certainly influential but i never gave it a whole lot more credit than that um i i still sort of feel like it's it's that kind of movie but i'm not sure why because i i was amazed and mesmerized this entire movie i was never bored I i thought it was absolutely amazing uh so but yet, at the same time, I still can totally understand and sort of feel the same way about what this type of what type of movie this is. Hmm. Yeah, for me, it it's weird. It's like the appreciation is absolutely there for this movie, but I do tend to uh, lean on the side of you know it's 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 a difficult watch in a way um not that i think it's a bad movie or anything but like it it, you know the the story and it i don't know it's 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 more about the it's more about the filmmaking like i literally have a note here that's like 
at some point, is it just like Kubrick showing off? Is he just showing off what he's capable of doing? Which is cool, which is great, but, you know, if it, when you go into a movie looking for some sort of thing to grasp onto, some sort of story to grasp onto, that doesn't even start till the Hal uh, storyline. Right. So, yeah, sort I don't of. know. I mean... Yeah, I I mean it's like I I like if if I were to put myself on any sort of degree of it, Jape, and it would be I would be on the the side of yeah, it is a difficult watch. Okay, so to kind of um you know modernize this for lack of a better term to kind of give it a comparison, I was thinking about um, Phantom Thread, which you know all of our reactions to that movie were that it was just unbelievable filmmaking. And Jeremy, you pointed out that like here Kubrick is kind of just showing off. And I remember mentioning that about PTA and Phantom Thread. But, you know, my uh, my disappointment in that movie was that it was kind of boring. And I think you can kind of make that same argument here. I don't think that it was like I I think the story is just interesting enough um, and the filmmaking is amazing, but it's not they aren't two separate things at all. Um, And that may have been what I remembered it being. uh, But I don't think that's it i just think he's just very very patient in the way he tells his story i mean everything sort of plays out in real time in this movie i mean it doesn't really because they're you know traveling places that are like billions of miles away but you know the scenes when they take the pod outside of the ship and it you it takes as long to get where they're going as it takes to get where they're going and we watch that and i think it's just patient and methodical and so i think yeah the filmmaking is the highlight but it does kind of aid the story well i think and i think we kind of had that same uh conversation about phantom thread well well, my question to go back to you chapin is just like what what do you grasp onto on this movie that keeps you as engaged as you are for the entire time i mean i just think it's pure filmmaking you know it's 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 just like creativity unleashed uh and 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 his vision is so great big and wide i mean he's basically telling the story of the you know the forming of the universe or, or and just you know maybe maybe just mankind but like um and i just think it's fascinating to watch him watch kubrick do that and we've seen him do um you know, I think he's a, you know, obviously he's this filmmaker uh, who's incredibly influential and important, but I think this is his most important movie. I think this is him working at, at you know, at, at his zenith. And um, it, it, I, I think, you know, I, I was thinking about this going in, um, you know, we had that conversation, Jeremy, on last time you and I did this on Ant-Man and the Wasp about your, your love of structure. And I can imagine why this may not have rang your bell quite like it does me um, because mm-hmm. it is kind of meandering. It's not really about, I mean, there are, there are a bunch of different stories spread throughout this, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, very sort of broadly speaking, the, the story of the dawn of man, but um, <laughs> that's as broad as you can get. I mean, yeah, yeah. That's, that's quite, that's quite the broad. T- the dawn of man to man's <laughs> exploration in space. Right. There you go. Um, and, you know, that being said, I, I think, like, Kubrick 
is one of those filmmakers where I, I don't know that like story and structure and plot are the most important things to him. I don't think they are here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, but yeah, like I think it's just, it's an incredibly, it's just like to me when I, when I, when I went away this, I've been trying to like think about how to describe Kubrick's brilliance. Um, and I guess the one thing I would say is specifically talking about his shots, but I think you could expand this to be a, a, a more macro comment on his filmmaking style. But like, you're always looking where he, you're always seeing what he wants you to see, you know, you know, mm-hmm. you're, you're never, you're never, um, you're never looking, you're never, you're, he, he's just incredible at, at directing your attention somewhere. And you're never like thinking about something else. You're not like trying to figure anything out. He's always just like showing you exactly what he wants you to see. And I think that's a, a really interesting, you know, that seems rather simple, but I I think it's an incredible uh, way of, of making movies. Yeah. Well, well he- while, while watching this, I literally had the thought like Kubrick is the ultimate director. He is everything trickles down from him like everything before and everything after he kind of is the zenith of directing for that exact reason you say chapin um the the artistic attention to where you want the frame to be and it's it's so much in 2001 a space odyssey that when (laughs) when the humans started becoming a part of it they were almost distracting they were almost a flaw in the system of kubrick because they they took your attention a little bit away from the symmetry and the the design of every one of his frames because humans essentially are flawed beings and you you know that they're actors that are playing these roles and it, it, it almost distracts you away from what this amazing director is doing. And I, th- I thought, geez, that's really interesting to actually have like actors and characters take you away from the filmmaker because the filmmaker is the ultimate star of this movie. Right. I don't yeah, know if I a- totally agree with that. I mean, I agree that Kubrick's the star here, but you know, something I think that he does so amazingly is he he sent, he uses his actors perfectly as set pieces and like they're every and Chapin said like you're looking at everything you're supposed to at the right time and there's an amazing shot that I, it's later on in the movie um, and I think it's I want to say it's when Hal is being disassembled but you see the reflection of um, the char- what's the character's name um, now I can't remember the main character Dave. Dave, yeah, you, you see the reflection of his face, kind of in uh, in Hal. So you see, you know, what he's doing and what he's thinking while you're watching what's going on, and it's and it's all done so perfectly. It's an amazing shot. And then, uh, it, when you were just talking about that, Jeremy, it, it reminded me of the um, the documentary about uh, The Shining, Room Three Twelve or whatever it's called. Um, and this, have you guys seen that? I think I yeah, have. I, yeah, I saw that, yeah. Well, there's this whole segment in it where they sort of wax poetic about how 
how well like this long shot is going on at towards the beginning at the at the hotel where uh characters are coming in and out of the frame in like perfect symmetry and at the exact right times and it's just choreographed so perfectly and you know again i think it's just yeah he is the star but kubrick is using every single piece absolutely perfectly here yeah and with everything i'm uh, right like i also i agree with you lee but i also think like weirdly and and it's not to take away from anything that he's done but i also feel like humans become a distraction in this particular movie because of um the uh design of the film and the subject matter of the film like humans become sort of i think uh, i'd i would agree more except for the added piece too that i actually think the acting in this movie is really good really i think yeah. it's not that good i think I, it's very robotic and not in a hal sort well, of way well that's di- that's an interesting point i mean there are i think that's a common trope in especially like kubrick's later movies that you know this this sort of robotic it's almost like purposely um c- like conspicuously you know, created dialogue as if it, as if it was you know sort of poorly written. Like I think about that scene um, in The Shining when Jack Nicholson is being interviewed for the job at um, the Overlook Hotel, um, and then the the beginnings of the sequence um, in this film where uh, I forget the guy, the characters that Floyd's uh, yeah, Floyd him. starts talking to the people in the lobby of the of the Hilton there on the, on the um, space station. Um, and there's like a minute or two of like pleasantries being kind of passed back and forth that are sort of, you know, they're, they're just, they seem, they're sort of awkward. They feel, they feel very stale. Um, and I, if you see that a lot in Kubrick's movies and I think it's, I, I believe it's in, I believe it's completely intentional. Um, but it does it does you you get that feeling that it's not you know one like you identify jeremy it's it's sort of not well acted and also that like maybe kubrick doesn't really give a shit about dialogue or actors no it's it's definitely like plays second fiddle to everything else but i don't think it's like it's not that it isn't considered right like i i i assume that you know i don't feel as the viewer of the movie that he's paid any less attention to that dialogue than than he has i mean i think that is as deliberate as everything else in him in the movie uh yes and no i also yeah no i i agree but at the same time he like makes it not deliberate on purpose like he's just kind of feel i almost feel like he gets annoyed by having to put humans into the equation in a weird way he's so precise and so specific that it it feels like he's it's not that he doesn't consider it but it's just like something that he he can't control that he's not like over the moon about so he he dressed him up like apes so he didn't have to deal with them and that was amazing like honestly the costume work on that was great yeah yeah it's incredible I think what's really hard for us doing uh, an episode on 2001 A Space Odyssey, kind of the same way 
you know, that we opened up the Jaws podcast saying we didn't want to just praise the movie the whole time. And I think we are a little bit guilty, especially of when we're doing these sort of retrospective episodes of, you know, just praising these movies. So, but so how do we, how do we look at a movie like this without just kind of having our jaws dropped by the filmmaking? Because that is ultimately what is so amazing about it and why it's influential to us and to other movies. So, you know, how do you, how do you review a movie like this? And even, even if we can't actually do it, like, how do you go into it? How do you approach that? Well, I can tell you, I, I mean, for me, the appreciation aside, it's a tougher movie for me to sit through and watch because of that, that, that stuff we've talked about in the past, as far as story and structure and all that. Um, it's just like I I don't know, just my brain works in a way where I need something to latch on to uh story wise that this movie doesn't provide. You're right there, Chapin? Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Somebody else in the room with you? No, 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 I'm sorry. Continue. No, I mean I that's like that's my criticism I, of this movie. It's just like I it's hard for like I I mean, I'm glad yeah, we got I to mean, watch it again. And I'm glad we got to um, review it, but I'm not going to go out and and sit through this probably for another ten years. That's funny. I mean, that's, that's, that's funny. That you, it's like I seem to watch it like every year. I, I mean, could I'm, watch it I'm, right now. Yeah. I'm really glad that you are feeling that way. It is a, like an inherently visual movie. I mean, Cooper had a great quote about that. Um, that like he's like he said basically a visual nonverbal experience and hits the view at an inner level of consciousness, just as music does or painting. And I think that's a really interesting way to think about that. And like in a lot of ways, I love that about movies like that when, when they, when they don't become, when, when they're, when they sort of transcend that kind of plot structure, dialogue stuff that we, we talked about loving a couple of podcasts ago and becoming an altogether different experience. But if that didn't work for you, you know, I think that that doesn't work for a lot of people. Right. Um, uh-huh. But to kind of answer your question, Lee, I mean, I, I think that like what I would like to have happen for these older episodes is, you know, if we, if we are in fact picking movies that we like or that, that are famous or have, have sort of stood the test of time and are still in, in, in the sort of general psyche, I think it'd be cool much like it would be if, you know, we went wine tasting with you again and you explained to Jeremy and I, why we should appreciate this wine or why we would like (laughs) that wine kind of walking us, walking the audience through, you know, what's to appreciate about this movie. And, you know, in Jeremy's case, he's, you know, maybe a lot of people will find it refreshing that he didn't like it. Um, but I think, well, it's not that I didn't like it and I appreciate the filmmaking, but like, I also understand why people have a hard time sitting through the two and a half hours of it because you think entertainment not... has something to do with it. Because by definition, I don't know that I was entertained by this movie. Like I loved it. Like I said, I could watch it right now. I thought it was amazing. But you know, but I don't need it's... to be entertained. I don't need to be like. I don't need to have some sort of. I don't know. But whatever you want to mo- call but, it. But entertainment value. I just. I just like think that beyond my appreciation for this film, for when it was made and the filmmaking prowess of it, I don't know what else to latch on to. But if you if you're 
if you're on Friday night, you say, okay, I'm going to watch a movie. What do I want to watch? You're going to pick something you're likely that you, you know, you want to pick something you've seen before, but you're likely going to pick something that you feel you'll be entertained by, you know, and I'm looking at that kind of as the, as the most simplest definition of that. Like, you know, you don't, ne- not necessarily something that you're going to have a blast watching or something, but you know, something yeah, that really but... kind of gets you going on all levels of filmmaking. Right. Right. I guess that's the, the answer because I don't I don't want to make it sound like I just want to watch a Simpsons episode. Right, that's not you what know? I mean. Yeah, I I wanted to work on for the me level like the social that this works comes on. To mind. Well, yeah, the level this the two thousand one works on, but also a level that there's more of a structure as far as the um, the plot goes. I mean. If you combine those, then you got the ultimate movie. I, I'm not trying to like shit on this movie at all. I, I I just get where people are coming from if they go, oh man, this is tough. Two and a half hours to sit through, especially since like you don't actually get invested until that Hal um, storyline comes up. Right. I I mean. Either way, yeah, I don't, I, I mean, I was, I, I actually, I, the piece I remembered the most was the Dawn of Man sequence with the, with the apes, but that was sort of the least interesting to me. It was, it was right after that where I sort of got hooked, but either way, um, as much as I did enjoy this movie, I, I was a bit turned off by the last 25, 30 minutes, um, when it turned well, into, uh, what we were discussing should we try to interpret the last 25 30 minutes or should we just well even leave before it we do that like that that to me is where like i don't know it, it sort of fell out of the realm of reality as odd as that might sound for this movie like even like how even so the i'm 10 curious minutes, how that the 10 minute light the, the 10 minute of... light show sequence and then sort of and then you get to he him kind of seeing himself and i guess he's reborn and I guess we can't really discuss it without trying to interpret it in some way, but that that last sequence, I, I was uh, much less interested in than I was for the uh, rest of the entire movie. I agree. I, I think it was the least interesting. I'm just not sure why or what the difference was. But what is an interesting? Well, fact for me, I do like. I mean, you pointed out that this movie doesn't have like a, a, a like fully structured story, which it it doesn't. But I do give it a little bit more credit than you, I think, in the structure of the story. I mean. It, you know, it does. It begins with sort of this mystery about what's going on on the moon, and uh, you know, you're led into kind of the briefing that Doctor Haywood has, um, or Doctor Floyd has, and and uh, you know, trying to make come up with a plan for how to address this issue, and then you flash forward to now the Jupiter mission, and it turns out that they're connected, and the um, the secret on the moon has sent them there, and how. Uh, kind of disrupts that so i think there is a pretty simple structure there and i think it's you know easy to follow albeit you know there are some intentional holes uh plot holes that they kind of just leave you guessing on but then once you get to that you know light show in the last 25 30 minutes that's that's all gone there's there's definitely no more structure yeah right so maybe that's why maybe that's why i don't like it (laughs) Well, well, you don't like it? That last bit, that last oh, scene, gotcha. yeah. Um, well, it's interesting. I, I read this New York Times article about the the film, and when it first came out, people 
did not like it. They just did not know what to make yeah, it. Yeah, I thought people were walking out and screaming. Yeah, people were walking out. They were not interested. And then it was like the drug culture that uh, resurrected the film and, <laughs> and made, it a, a made it a hit. People just kept... And they knew when to get high. Like, they knew when to drop their drugs so that they could get high at that moment when he's going through the lights. And that's funny that you bring that up. Um, I mean, I was thinking like, I, 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 I too remember that, 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 that's, that being a very famous part of the history of this movie. And, um, you know, like you, you were, it's funny that people had to sort of dose themselves in order to surrender so much to a movie. I mean, we, I just read you that quote from Kubrick about how he wanted this to be like your involvement in a, you know, you, you don't, at least I don't people who maybe don't understand music as much as, you know, people who make music, but I, you know, you don't, you sort of surrender your emotions to a piece of music. You know, you don't look for structure and, um, you don't look for specific things. It's, it's an emotional experience as opposed to an intellectual one. And I mm -hmm. think, um, so often you just mentioned the social network, Lee, like the social network, I think it's a very much an intellectual experience. I mean, I think going to movies in general is a, is an emotional one, but, we we add our intellectual aspect of it. We we look for things. There there are there are moments when our brain uh, has to has to take over as opposed to our gut or our heart or however you whatever kind of organ you want to use to describe the emotional experience. But when this movie becomes completely completely kind of void of any sort of semblance of anything, your brain could 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 grasp onto people start taking drugs um and i don't think they do that to make you know it's like well we got to sit through 2001 so we got to make sure we t drop acid you know at 10 minutes in so that it hits us during the stargate sequence but it is to just sort of enjoy that part better and i think that's really interesting it's like you kind of you have to like shut off a part of your mind to really appreciate that sequence and um you know i think that kind of i don't know if that speaks more to like our like human inherent kind of lack of an ability to appreciate something like that. Or if, you know, that sequence just isn't good, you know? I, I mean, I think it speaks, the whole movie, I think kind of speaks to how things aren't appreciated in their time. Like, I, I think it's almost a tragedy that this movie wasn't appreciated when it first came out. Like it, it's so innovative. I don't think we can emphasize that enough. Like, it's things that have never been seen before. It's it, and Jeremy pointed out it happened before the moon landing. Like these are things that you know could people are seeing on screen that you are, would essentially be impossible, and people were walking out. Whether they, regardless of whether they found the movie boring, and I get it. Like the same thing would happen today. Like if if the most amazing technical technological achievement happened on screen and the movie was you know a boring slow piece of shit people would walk out too because they just don't have the appreciation for the you know uh the technology and the filmmaking um they go to be entertained but i think you know it's it just goes to that same idea that things aren't appreciated in their time and it, it takes you know x amount of years to look back and say wow look at look at what this movie did for you know for every movie moving forward what what do you guys think is a movie has there been anything like that? What like what 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 would since then? Yeah, like what would you describe as a? I mean, I guess more honestly, recently, like in the age honestly, of digital effects, I would say Avatar. Yeah, and I mean it's not it doesn't work 
to the extent and doesn't have the um I guess the 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 standing power of this movie, but I I would say that's I don't know Lord of the Rings I think <laughs> did the um, motion capture just as good as Avatar did. So. Yeah, but Avatar had created a whole world within that better than Lord of the Rings did. Not that it needed to. Not that Lord of the Rings needed to. I mean, it had New Zealand. So, Ready Player One, I think, was uh, did it best. Oh boy, but there is there is a point I do want to get to, and it's um, is this the ultimate score? Is this like the best score? in the history of film. Well, it's not um, a score. So the Why why do you say that, Jason? Because it's all it's all music that existed before. I don't Even think there, the opening sequence? I don't think there was Oh, that might be. You know what? You might be right. That might have been original. I, actually, no, I think that's an existing piece of music. Well, bum, bum, either that, way. You know? So the entire the entirety of the music in this movie, so I was watching this movie and Lydia was upstairs so it wasn't watching the movie and since you know since there's you know 80% of this movie without any dialogue at all all she could hear is the music and she was telling me how she was she it was making her feel uneasy mm-hmm. and it just kind of shows you how I don't know I, I guess effective but at least mesmerizing uh, that music can be in this movie and you know, and I was I wasn't surprised at all to hear her say that. So in well, that sense, I think it's it's some of the most, you know, uh, I guess you know, hypnotizing and mesmerizing use of music that's ever been done. It's it's the Kubrick factor. It's like what we were talking about, just Kubrick being the ultimate director. It's just like he is the he's at the 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 pinnacle of directing when it comes to this this film like it's it's about him controlling every frame like chapin was talking about earlier and i don't know i don't know what else to say it's just like he knows he he's taking this art form and like showing off what you can do with it for our top five in honor of 2001, the film we just kind of discussed, um, we are doing our top five kind of silent sequences or really sequences with sort of very minimal or no dialogue. Is that how you guys interpreted this? Um, that's yes. what I did. Uh, I, I really struggled with this. Was I wanted to get creative because especially like, I think I find this so powerful in movies, but I just had, I just was racking my brains as to like how we could figure out how to get this to work. But, um, so, Lee, why don't you kick us off with your criteria and your number five? Okay. Um, I had well, I, I got criteria, too. So. Of course. Well, you can say that when you give your number five. All right, fine. We'll do it that way. <clears throat> Wait, so is Jeremy going first now? No, you're going first. Okay. So, my I had three criteria. I said no opening scenes. Um, I felt like there were a lot of great opening scenes with no dialogue. Um and that you know, or uh, that you know, um, there will be blood comes to mind, things like that. So I avoided those um, scenes with heavy action sequences or um, scenes that were kind of dominated by music. I left those out too, because um, I was sort of looking for you know, shaping like what you were kind of describing as some of these more these powerful scenes where like the absence of sound or dialogue is very 
very evident and you right. know in an action scene it does you don't really notice and same with scenes um with a lot of music so um with my number five i uh so i guess tying in nicely with 2001 space odyssey i went with the re-entry scene from apollo 13 um very few lines of dialogue in there just kind of giving you updates on the time uh, the occasional news reporter, Walter Cronkite, kind of giving you some updates. But aside from that, it's just all about the suspense of waiting for these guys to come back and to see if they make it. Um, and quick, I mean, I saw this movie when I was very young and didn't know for sure whether they survived. So I just remember pretty vividly just being on the edge of my seat watching that scene and like really having my fingers crossed that they would they would make it back alive. Wow, that's incredible. It's so incredibly. Okay, I'll go. Um, I no reaction really... to that? That's a no, great movie. I, no, like, I think that's nothing. great. I don't really, I don't think of that as a sort of a silent, or a, a quiet sequence, really. But I suppose you're right. Yeah, very little dialogue. I mean, I was looking specifically with for no dialogue. This is the one, in fact, that, you know, I, I, maybe one other one I have has that's the thing, a line or two. That's a thing, dialogue. Um, yeah, I, very little. Yeah, I do that's think why it's does. my number five. I do think it has dialogue. Um, well, you inspired me to fit to um, change out my number five. Um, I, don't, I was going to say it's the same director, but it's not. It's the same actor. Um, I'm going to go with the the first sequence when uh, Tom Hanks is on the island in Castaway. There you go. Um, nah. And oh, sorry, what were you going to say, Jeremy? Was there dialogue? Was he talking at that point? He occasionally like to himself. He occasionally you know calls out hello. Um, but for the most part, it's very, very silent. And I think, you know, uh, Zemeckis is, is, does a great job of, like, creating this chaotic, hectic, um, you know, lifestyle for that character, for Tom Hanks' character in that movie, uh, where he's running around, he's flying from Nashville to um, Russia. They do this sort on the, you know, right in the Red Square there or whatever it's called, and... Um, you know, he's got this hectic, crazy life, and he can't seem to get away from his beeper. And then um, it, it, all of that sort of energy is sustained until through the plane crash, spoiler alert, and then he kind of wakes up on this island, and there's, like, just nothingness. Um, and the, the kind of, you know, what that sort of says about, you know, that character specifically, but I think kind of all of our lives who live, who live you know, busy sort of um, job, you know, job-driven lives in big cities you know they're they're noisy and hectic and chaotic and all right so my criteria was pretty much the same as lee's i also put in the criteria of no silent films all right i sort of unofficially had that too i wasn't excluding them but i couldn't think of any good scenes (laughs) (laughs) yeah i didn't want to have to go back that far Uh, my number five is a series we just talked about and an actor we just talked about, but it is uh, Mission Impossible, the first one, when Tom Cruise is sneaking in and he has to go down. I don't, where was he even sneaking in at that Langley. point? Langley. It was yeah, the, yeah, yeah, the Langley, library at WCS. Langley or wherever, yeah. And he has to like fall from the, the ceiling and he has that sweat drop off of his brow and he has to catch it before it hits the ground. That's a great scene. I liked your version of it better, Jeremy. The one I did in high school? Yeah. Yeah. I definitely hit the the lasers, (laughs) which were made out of yarn. Uh, That's a good pick. I didn't even think about that. 
Yeah, that was my number five before I switched it out. Oh, oh why'd you switch it out then? Because of Apollo 13, so you're welcome, Jeremy. Saved your number five. Oh, look at that. All right, my number four, I know that I'm going to get some grief for this pick, um, but I really like this movie. Um, this scene is super melodramatic, as is, I think, much of the movie, but uh, it's a scene when Denzel Washington gets whipped in glory. And look, the even the music in this scene like times up perfectly with Denzel's tear falling down his cheek. I was rewatching it, and I was kind of rolling my eyes at that. Um, but at the same time, it's pretty powerful. The look on uh, on Denzel's face. Um, uh, Carrie Elwes has a kind of a, a really kind of uh, important reaction there, and even Matthew Broderick, who I don't think is particularly good in that movie as a whole, is kind of really good in that scene. Uh, so, regardless of the melodrama, I think this scene uh, works well. Well, you know that was a Massachusetts regiment, and they're redoing the. Um the uh whatever it's called the the plaque or statue or whatever it is on the boston common uh they're they're putting 2.8 million dollars into redoing that why i don't know i i guess somebody complained i have no idea i i don't even know i haven't even been to the actual i didn't know um, where it was yeah yeah it's on the common i haven't been to the the statue but uh, apparently they're doing the whole thing over again, but uh, that's recent news. So. Are they gonna? Are they gonna do it? They're gonna take a cast of Denzel Washington and put his likeness into the. Yeah, maybe. So it's more familiar to people. <laughs> okay, um, my number four is uh, in the early two thousands. Um, Gus Van Sant, who is a filmmaker that I think is quite interesting, and one who. Uh, I don't know, like, is he good or not? And has he's had some real, real lows and some, you know, some, some good highs too. But he had, he had what was called the Death Trilogy, and this is the first movie in the Death Trilogy of the early two thousands, and it's Jerry, a little known film, um, and it features Casey Affleck and um, uh, and um, Matt, Matt Damon. Damon. And the the movie is very, there's very little dialogue, there's very little plot. They're just sort of walking through the desert. Um, and they get lost and spoiler alert for those who haven't seen the movie and plan on seeing it. Um, they just eventually like get to a point where they run out of water and food and are walking aimlessly. And, um, it's kind of understood that Casey Affleck like wants to die and Matt Damon obliges him, um, and basically kills him, but by his request, and it's a powerful sequence and one that I remember that stands out to me. I never saw that movie. What are the other movies in that trilogy? Elephant is the second one, and the third Elephant one I've seen is, Elephant. is yeah. Last Days, the kind of the Kurt Cobain. Oh, which I've always movie. wanted to see. Yeah, yeah. Um, Last Days is I I did not find to be very good, but um, Elephant's the only one I saw, which I didn't think was particularly good either, but. Oh, that was a great number five. My number four is <laughs> the uh, last scene of The Graduate. Yeah, uh, yeah, I thought about that. That's Honorable a great mention scene. for me. Such a good, like, it's just like, every, everything in the faces, right? And, and it's all one right. shot, and they just, every, I, I, I don't know why I'm explaining your number four. I'm sorry. No, it's great. Well, I'll pick it right, right up from there. Right. They, they're, like, laughing and smiling, and then they turn to face forward, and they just sort of slowly fade into kind of just, like, serenity and then maybe a little fear and just yeah 
it's it's a great yeah it's a realization it's yeah. a realization of like there's ramifications for doing this stuff which is great because all the, most of the movies you ever see you do the stuff before and that's the end of the movie and and in the graduate you have that moment where you're like oh shit we just did that we have to live with it good thing i wasn't listening because we would have never gotten that pick okay so um lee what is your number three please my number three is uh the phone call between matt damon and leonardo dicaprio in the departed great really good pick that's a good pick excellent you guys never even thought about that did you do you want to explain that a little bit i did i did think about that yeah so i mean it's scorsese does it so well he you don't need any expository dialogue there. You don't need anything other than the looks on the actors' faces. When that phone rings, you already know that what DiCaprio is thinking—that this—that whoever's calling this uh, this number uh, is up to something because he knows the queen is dead. And and I think it's just brilliantly done. And you know, the kind of pacing back and forth, but not knowing what to do. That whole scene works so well. Great. Uh, is it my turn? It sure is. Okay. My number three is, um, it's a movie that, you know, uses sound so brilliantly and, um, it might be one of the best sound designed movies ever. And it's the conversation. And I was trying to think about which sequence I like oh, the most. Great pick. Um, but I think it's the one where he's searching for the bug and it's just that idea, you know, it's at the end, towards the end of at the, the end, movie yeah. and he's just, mm-hmm. he just tears apart his entire apartment um, and I think what's really kind of interesting about that sequence is that he is a guy that bugs people for a living. That's what he does. Like, that's his whole personality, Gene Hackman, is he bugs people for a living. And then he finds out that he's been bugged. And it's suddenly turned on its head, and he's the one, he's the victim now. And it just drives him nuts. It just drives him to... to yeah, paranoia. Yeah, to be paranoid. And he rips his entire place apart. And I actually, do you guys remember where the bug ends up being? Does he ever find it? I don't think he ever finds it. I don't it. think he does. Mm. No, he, I think it ends with him not knowing. I think you're not or, even or sure. Maybe if, we don't even know if it's he's for sure he, that he's yeah. been bugged. Right. Yeah, I, I I took it as he actually wasn't bugged and he's just paranoid. Oh, okay. Well, yeah, that's what I always thought too. Yeah, it's been a long but time since a I saw pick. that. Yeah, that's a really good pick. All right, so we're gonna skip Jeremy's number three. Go right to me. No, we're gonna go with my number three, which is the sequence in rear window which i believe you guys talked about recently um when jimmy stewart is um he's kind of there's nothing he can do while grace kelly's going through the apartments and he just wants to say something he wants to be like hey you know scream out that uh you know there's a murderer there but he can't do anything and he's just handicapped in more than one way there in that whole sequence i'm going with my number three i knew there had to be a hitchcock movie that had a perfect scene for this and i couldn't come up with one so well i i did so rear window i'm not sure why i didn't think of that movie um all right my number two uh there is um i guess from where this move uh, where this scene begins there is kind of one throwaway line um by the actor uh, but the rest of it um, is all no dialogue and, and perhaps part of it a little montage but it's the end scene in American History X, uh, basically from when uh, Derek drops Danny off at school. Um, 
you know, there's some activity in the hallway. He says bye to his girlfriend. Danny says bye to his girlfriend. But then from there, goes into the bathroom and, and spoiler alert, gets shot. And then um, kind of the cutaways to Derek walking away and the car going by and kind of the fear and, you know, the, you know, unknown of what's going to happen that day. Uh, and followed by him kind of running into the school before the um, kind of slow motion shot of him running in ends and the sound picks back up. Is, I mean, it's an amazing end to a movie, um, and and that scene is is I think really well done. I I'm glad you got an American History X reference into our podcast because weirdly that movie we don't talk about it very often, but it does have uh, an impact on us. Um, yeah, and I think I I think it's it, it is a good movie, and for some reason we just it, it doesn't. You know, it's never going to be in the discussion with the greats. It's never going to be in the discussion with what movies need to do, like, something different. So it's interesting you got it in. Okay. All right. uh, my number two is a movie w- that actually came up last week. Um, and it wasn't a movie I was – it was a movie that I liked but was definitely disappointed by, and that's Star Wars The Last Jedi – um, but one of the points that I really loved in this movie was the sequence when uh, uh, Laura Dern's character saves the day by um, going to light speed right into uh, uh, an enemy, an enemy's uh, ship, and there's a sequence where whatever happens when that happens, just kind of there's it just goes quiet, and for. 10 seconds or 15 seconds this you know very loud movie with lots of uh, you know with a score throughout goes completely silent and um everything breaks apart and it's a pretty uh, amazing sequence in a movie that i wasn't completely you know sold on but um uh, i, I would have loved to see more moments like that wow that's pretty amazing to be your number two well, it's, it is great to kind of, de- uh, and I didn't particularly like that movie either, but sort of defend your pick. Like, it's it's great when movies that are so big like that and just nonstop just take a step back and breathe and, like, you just get to watch the action kind of unfold simply. Um, it's almost like a welcomed reprieve that you get kind of, you know, catch your breath. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I, I, I think... Uh, it, 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 it sort of speaks volumes that I think some theaters had to put signs up in, you know, going into the movie that there is there is a sequence where the, the audio drops out. And, like, it's not even that long a sequence. It seems weird that, like, th- I mean, th- people must have complained, right? Like, that, right. like what happened to the audio here? And that's how used to we are of this, like, constant, you know, sort of hum of noise and sound effects and music. Um. That when it, yeah, it goes out of the way we we uh, we react that way. Like, like the beginning of 2001 a space odyssey <laughs> when it, the screen is literally black for like five minutes yeah but there's so yeah. much there's so much silence in 2001 i mean there's like literally moments when there's no audio at all because they're in space um yeah but when but, the screen's black and it's <laughs> you have to make sure it's playing but there's even are you talking about even during the breathe like there's a lot of breathing like very heavy breathing even when there's nothing else going on there are there is but but there are sequences when the when like for example the like the uh the the other astronaut's body is floating away and and it's just in space and you don't and all the shots of the ship and stuff if there's no music that you don't hear anything well the scene when he goes when he goes in the exit door um 
that it's completely silent until it cl- until he closes the airlock. Yeah, the airlock. Yeah. Um, which you don't. I, I thought it was amazing. You didn't even notice that the sound dropped out until it came back. Yeah. All right. Uh, All right, Jeremy. Um, I I think I'm up. Your number two. Ha- Hal, please present my number two. <laughs> Brilliant. <laughs> no it's country not, not for working. old men, and it's the scene where he, where he's on one side of the door. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, I believe it was uh, Anton Chigurh is on the other side of the door. Yeah, and then he 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 slowly like unscrews the light bulb. It, yeah, yeah. I mean, talk about good filmmaking. Talk about using uh, silence for suspense. Um, so that's my number two. Yeah, that's a good pick. I, I, I mean, I've, I, of course, just kind of researching. I came across some scenes from No Country for Old Men, and I couldn't. I, that scene, I think, came to mind, but I, for some reason, I dismissed it. I couldn't think of a scene like I, I kept trying to think of scenes when uh, Anton Chigurh was with. Um, Kelly McDonald, but there is dialogue there for some reason. I was thinking that scene, uh, but yeah, that's that's a good one. All right, yeah, this was that was the first thing that came to my mind when we when we decided to do this top five was that scene. Okay, my number one, um, also a movie that we don't tend to talk about too much. I'm, I know it's come up, you know, a couple times over the years. Um, and also a movie that I've kind of criticized for not aging particularly well, um, but it's from Life is Beautiful, um, Roberto Benigni's oh, Life is Beautiful, um, and it's a scene towards the end when uh, basically Benigni's getting kind of um, marched off to be executed, and you see only part of it kind of through the little uh, peak hole on the box that his son is hiding in, and he's sort of just like dancing through the street because he knows what his son is watching and doesn't want him to see what happens. And then they kind of go down an alley and they turn a corner. You don't see anything and you hear the gun go off and the soldier runs off. And I remember seeing that for the first time. And like, just you were, I was so shocked that he was killed that you were trying to justify in your head how he could not be dead because it just didn't seem to be uh, plausible. Um, You had grown such an attachment to this character. Um, and it's done it's done great i mean it's a it's that movie like i said is not aged particularly well i don't think for me but um it's powerful for sure um and he does i got a couple questions questions for you a like what made you think of that first of all because that's a great pick and then b like why do you say it hasn't aged well have you recently seen it uh not real recently um I don't it's been a few years probably since the last time I watched it and it kind of played that way as something that just isn't holding up the same way it doesn't you know the the comedy aspects are of it the holocaust wasn't as funny this time around um <laughs> turns out <laughs> so, no the comedy just kind of didn't play as well it didn't you know the it's sort of a nice romance too with um you know how he how he gets his wife and I don't know it just it, it played a little cheesy um as opposed okay. to kind of um, you know romantic did you, and did you say you watched it recently? It's probably been a few years, but mm. um, but that in that and that was sort of my reaction probably the the previous two times that I've seen it. Um, and as far as thinking, I got to give credit where credits due. That was Lydia's pick uh, when we were talking about the top five. She suggested that. Well, Lee, as usual, you've ruined my number one in your opening 
um, your criteria, and mine is there will be blood the opening sequence. Um, and I'm angry with you, but I will move on. <laughs> um, I think this there will be blood has a lot uh, owed to 2001 and Kubrick in general. Um, Definitely, yeah, and, absolutely. Uh, this sequence in particular is just, it's not just that it's largely silent and, um, you know, without dialogue, the first 20 minutes when you, you are with Daniel Plainview, when he is, um, I believe mining for gold and then breaks his, um, he breaks his leg and in, in that sequence, I don't think he discovers oil, right? That's another sequence, but he gets some gold and suppose, and then I guess the, um, the assumption is he drags himself back to the. To the town or wherever so he can cash in his gold um and yeah i mean it's just it's again i think in general like the lesson learned here is just the just the show not tell as i've we've brought up a bunch of times on this podcast just the ability to tell a story visually and and to do it without dialogue is as kind of a tool is is i think a really a, a way to really make your visuals powerful because they have to do so much of the heavy lifting um i think it's a really powerful sequence uh, you never um, miss sequence. the dialogue in that scene either no and you know dialogue to me is so hard to do right um and it's such it's it's kind of a lost art in my opinion and um so I don't mind that there's this if there is a trend towards this that I think this the idea of taking it away to make a sequence more powerful is is it work definitely works for me. What I always find interesting about that opening sequence, which I, I agree is just amazing, but there's this crescendo of music that like uh, in the end just shows you these. Like you, like the the camera like pans up, and you get these hills. Yeah, and it, it's weird that it's not mountains. You just get these sort of dinky hills. In the end, does anyone does anyone else? Yeah, like, yeah. I mean, I, I like it was a little bit like oh, everything just built to this moment, and then it just showed these hills. Yeah, I don't think it's that. I mean, I don't think the idea is that it's like he has to get over those. I don't think, you know, with his broken leg. I think the idea is that, like, there is something else. You know, the, there's this, I mean, one reading of it, maybe this is a little superficial, is that, like, there is all this, there's all this Empty stuff land. in the ground. Yeah, there's this, like, there's this, there's this, the, this land is, like, so much is going to come out of it and so much is going to be lost and the world's going to fight over everything that comes out of this sort of bleak, you know, bleak yeah. nothingness. And, um, I think, you know, he, Anderson learned that from Kubrick where, in, especially in, in 2001, where he's showing you these, you know, pure reading, beautiful spaceships. And, you know, in, in any other movie, a docking sequence would just be a docking sequence or it would be, you know, done very well, but, um, played for attention in interstellar and Christopher Nolan's interstellar, you know, he just shows the beauty of it and like the remarkableness of, of human and, you know, invention and innovation. And I think there's just ways to do that without just saying it, you know, there's this just beautiful way of presenting it. No, I agree. I think it's, it's a great pick. All right, so I'm on to my number one. Yep. Um, 
So my number one is a film that back actually taping at, at Emerson. We were uh, we were in a class. Actually, you weren't in this class. It was just me. So, but you were at Emerson. <laughs> I, I, I probably tested out of it. Yeah. So uh, the teacher played this this film and nobody had seen it before and and we watched she showed us the first 15 minutes of this film which are pretty much silent and everybody else in the class was like oh that was like boring i didn't understand it it was you know i didn't you know i didn't get it like and i was like that i i didn't know what they watched because that was like the most amazing 15 minutes of cinema i'd seen teachers maybe pet. in my life no i i just was like blown away by it and that is the first 15 minutes of once upon a time in the west sergio leone and it's interesting to pick that because uh him as a director in particular he was never interested in the dialogue or that sort of thing of a movie because he he recorded all the dialogue and the sound effects and everything after it was all about the frame and the filmmaking so um you know even though a lot of times you know he would uh you know change the di- like, even if somebody somebody spoke italian or uh french he would change it all to english after the fact but actually in the first 15 minutes of that movie nobody spoke it's just a standoff yeah, I don't know what was wrong with the rest of the people in your class. That's, I think, that's got to be one of my favorite scenes of all time. Uh, it's it's amazing. Um, that scene, tape in year number one, um, a handful of other opening scenes are why, you know, I, I left them off the list, um, which in hindsight is good because we didn't have any repeats because both of those would have ended up on my list. Fortunately, yeah, I didn't I mean, spoil yours, Jeremy. Exactly. No, I mean it's just, and and it's also where where I can't like, like I I know I I complained a little bit about two thousand and one and the the pacing of it and just not the pacing but just like the the fact that you couldn't like get connected to the movie. But then I'm gushing about once upon yeah, a time seeing in the that's West just as and patient the, waiting for a train. Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I I can't answer that question. I, it's just, yeah. All right. Well, that's going to do it for this edition of the Get Your Film Fix podcast. We're going to take this a second again to plug ourselves. No one has really been emailing us, and we'd love to hear from you guys. Um, like I said, it's going to have an effect. If you email us, chances are it's going to be on the show. And so we'd love to hear from you guys. No we have like a two-hour show where we're just reading emails now. We're just reading emails all day. <laughs> We'd, uh, you know, and uh, honestly, it gives us, a, a, just just for our own edification, uh, post it when you're listening to us. Let us know that you're listening and that, you know, that you like it, and then hopefully someone else will listen. And, yeah. Um, anything else you guys want to add? Yeah, we're going to start. gives us a sense of purpose. We're going to start yeah. reading uh, work emails and stuff if we don't get any related to the podcast. Oh, just to kind of encourage, you know, reading emails on the, just to prove that we'll do it. I'm staying. I'm finishing my coffee.
Enjoying my coffee. I have three painters who will show up at the set some point in the morning to follow the set dressers. Is there any place we can, in the building, we can stash ladders and paint? Or do you think I have to plan on totally vacating until we strike on Wednesday?